0: This is the river radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter.
1: welcome. You know, water is a critical resource. I mean it's one of the things that distinguishes this planet from you know, all the others that we know of. We've got free water on the surface of this planet, a lot of it, even though only a little of it is fresh water at any one time. And so that little ribbon of fresh water that's always running from the mountains back down to the sea is of huge importance ecologically. Rivers have sort of a, a purpose in a sense at a planetary scale and a geological scale, but at an ecological scale it's even more substantial and kind of more in our face in terms of looking at how that affects you know, obviously aquatic ecosystems, but as the circulation network for landscapes, rivers really help structure the way ecosystems are arrayed on terrain, and I'm allowed to develop.
0: Have you ever asked yourself, what is a river? How does this river work? Why is it right here? These questions of what is a river and how does it work have been percolating in my mind since I was a kid. Today's episode comes to you from my own desire to understand what a river is. When I first started this podcast, even just the planning phase well before I published that first episode about high water on Cat. I knew that this episode right here was one that I would create one day. This is the one I have been very eager to host for the past three years. What I found most interesting about the interview for this episode is how the questions I asked kept garnering answers that were not what I expected. Answers that demonstrated how basic my view is and how the answers rest in a dichotomy of complex and simple concepts. For instance, when I asked what are the basic components of a river, I am thinking of things that I have understood to be the answer. Bend, meander, oxbow, pool drop, eddy. And those were definitely not the answers. And I quickly discovered that a one hour episode is not nearly enough time to fit in all of the material. To find the best person for this interview, I reached out to a handful of listeners, colleagues, and friends. Of the 17 professional hydrologist recommendations I received, I settled on one. This batch of 17 suggests that there are many ways the show could go many ways to answer the question of what is a river. Today, we dig in on one way to look at what is a river. Before we begin the episode in full, supporting this show today is M-River, creators and manufacturers of river tables that demonstrate how rivers flow and change. Part of the mission of the River Radius is to foster understanding of rivers. M-River is a company that does just that. I was able to meet M-River at their manufacturing and shipping warehouse and hear from them how they feel their product emulates and further helps people understand a river.
2: Physically speaking, our models are a, an aluminum box filled with plastic grit that we run water through to model rivers. Conceptually speaking, our product is a slice of a real river shrunk down in space and time in a box so that you can see the way sediment moves the way erosion happens all the things that a real river does in a tiny frame in a compressed time scale and when you go out into the field in the real world you see in rivers and streams and creeks all the things that our models do and you see in our models almost everything that you see in a river in the real world my name is Steve Grimmer. My job title officially is artist mechanic, so I design things and build things and organize the shop.
0: This is a product worth getting your eyes on. Their website is mriver.com. That is E-M-R-I-V-E-R dot and they have several videos. These tables are full of color and movement, just like a river. Welcome to this interview with Dr. David Montgomery, exploring the topic of what is a river. We start off with Dave introducing himself.
1: My name is David R. Montgomery, and my primary job is teaching geomorphology at the University of Washington in Seattle. I also am a writer, and I write uh, popular science books, And uh, one of the first of which actually related to the history of how people uh, um, altered rivers and what they did to the salmon populations.
0: And then there's another thing I'm thinking that you do, and, and that, that has to do with soil and mushrooms and fungus. Am I right to think that?
1: Oh, yeah. You know, I also I look at uh, soils are something I've been spending a lot of time working on for the last 10 years or so, um, and I got into it by looking at how soils erode, um, which actually relates back to where rivers begin, how you start a channel by carving in into the landscape. Um, but if you think about uh, soils and agriculture and the sustainability of societies, I've been working a lot on that for the last 10 years. Um, and that's been a very interesting, both in academic pursuit, but also in terms of the the more popular um, science writing as well.
0: Okay. I called you because this topic that we're going to talk about today is the one topic I have been anxiously, patiently waiting for all things to line up to have this conversation. So I'm very excited to ask you the question and dig in on this conversation for the next little while. Tell us please, what is a river?
1: The way I see it, a river is clouds tearing down mountains as they return to the sea. Rivers are formed from precipitation. Those come from clouds and they erode landscapes and shape the world that we know and they end up back in the sea and they evaporate and go back to the clouds. It's all part of the big cycle.
0: Right, it's that simple. It's just that simple.
1: Yeah, but you know, there's lots of ways to think about how to answer that question. From from my perspective as a geomorphologist, I gave you an honest answer. But there's other ways that people've looked at rivers. You know, you can look at them uh, for a long time, they're highways for people, they're habitat for salmon they are fresh water supplies for people uh they're they're the source of irrigation for agriculture that helped uh drive the development of human societies and civilizations um and they're and they're aesthetic i mean they're a source of beauty and wonder and appreciation of nature there there are a lot of different ways to look at what is a river um whether you're looking at it in terms of its you know it's physical manifestations of the actual body of the river the flow of water or whether it's a home for things or whether it's a source of power. Um, there's lots of different ways to look at it.
0: Well, let's start then with this this question. Is a river only water or is it other things as well?
1: Boy, um, it's... It's other things as well. Even if you think about it in kind of a, a reductionist view uh, of you know just the physical aspect of a river, it's the gravel on the bed. It's the sand that's moving in it. It is the the stuff that's dissolved in the water. It's the organisms that are living in the water. Um, it's the, the the things that are growing on the banks that are actually reinforcing the banks and and helping to give the river form and substance. Um, so I like to think about it as more than just the water. It's a system for carrying water that interacts with its environment and shapes its environment and is shaped by its environment.
0: Your answer to that first question was something like uh, storm clouds tearing down mountains. Let's dig in on that that storm cloud piece a little bit because that, that's what's delivering the water. That's where the water's coming from. we got rain or snow coming down, and that becomes the source of water for these rivers but I want to move downstream some. So in our minds, moving downstream, maybe past the mountain some. And I want to ask the question there from that standpoint, where does the water that's moving past me in a river come from at that stage? Is it all still from the headwaters or are there other sources that I don't see delivering water into that river?
1: Yeah, there's actually a lot of sources that can deliver water that you don't really see and appreciate. In terms of, like, groundwater, uh, you know, the, you can think of the flow that you see in the physical channel of a river itself is kind of like the surface expression of kind of a deeper system because that water in the river itself can be either leaking into its bed and down to recharge the groundwater or it can be flowing from the groundwater up into the river and swelling the flow in the river. So there's a, there's an exchange and interaction of flow all the way down to the river system from, its, from the very headwaters right on down to where they, they meet, you know, either a close, a lake or a, or the sea, uh, where water is is not just moving in the river itself, but is but there's v- vertical exchanges as water moves into groundwater and the groundwater moves into the river, and there's um, many environments in many river systems where most of the overall sort of flow that's moving downstream is is actually underground beneath the bed of the river in what's called the hyporheic zone, or this is a below river uh, bed zone, and that in the degree to which that's important or not in the hydrology of a river really depends on the sort of the context of the river. Uh, what's the nature of the geological materials that water's flowing through? Was the water that was getting in at the headwaters, you know, is a source from snow, is a source from rain? Um, and how big a groundwater system that rid, that that flow is interacting with and where along the river profile you actually are. So it, it can be a very complicated um, series of exchanges and interactions between the flow that you see on the surface and the flow that's beneath the gravel or the sand or whatever's on the bed of the river, um, interacting with the groundwater.
0: I think of the Missouri River a few summers ago. It was flooding all through middle America. It didn't get a lot of press. It didn't seem to have a lot of news, but there was a massive flooding happening Uh, farms and all these livestock were impacted and we could get into the conversations around levees and all this, this work that's been done to kind of channelize it. But the question I really have is that from the, my observations, it didn't appear that the Missouri coming out of the mountains in Montana was really under a lot of rain or snow at that point. It was that it flooded out into like, I'm going to say Nebraska area. Um, And it, it seemed like there was rain there in middle America. So am I right to think that as the river moves from the mountains and it moves these hundreds of miles to where it's actually flooding that at that stage, the water table surrounding and below the river is very full because of that rain. And then that, the, 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 as the river moves through, it has nowhere to kind of soak into the ground. It's just gonna, it's gonna over, over top its banks. Is that a, an appropriate perception of that situation?
1: Um, you know, partially. Partially, I think the the other way to also look, and that's that's not wrong. But but uh, the reason I'm arguing is partially is that the other part is that once you have, uh, say, you have a river that's swollen with with runoff from the mountains and the groundwater table in your downstream areas has has risen. Once that groundwater table on the floodplains gets you know pretty close to the surface, so that the the, the surficial soils are saturated then any more rain that falls on that downstream landscape is going to run off straight into the river. It's not going to soak into the ground there. Mm -hmm. And so I I suspect that a lot of the flooding that you're seeing there is that because the floodplains were saturated, because the areas that would produce, that normally uh, rainfall would infiltrate or sink into the ground, if once that ground is saturated, it's a recipe for really quick, flashy conversion of that rainfall into runoff downstream in the rivers. And, you, and if the rivers are already kind of full and there's nowhere for it to go, it basically you know helps, if, if help is the right word in this context, uh, to actually produce flooding. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. And then this hyperreic zone, am I saying that right? Hyperreic?
1: Yeah, yeah, the hyporheic zone, that's the that's essentially the the groundwater, the near surface groundwater where the river water can be exchanging um you know flowing up into the river or seeping down sinking down into the riverbed. Um those exchanges are essentially between the, the river and the hyporheic zone. Um but yeah, you can you can generate flooding either by having, you know, an upstream area where you get an awful lot of rainfall that just overwhelms the capacity of the channel to to um Uh, to carry that water, or you can get it if you basically have, uh, you know, sort of soaked the sponge, if you will, around a river, and there's nowhere for the rainfall around there to go, and so it basically, um, you know, stacks up on the surface as flooding.
0: So is a water table, hyper zone water tables, are these things mm, big cavities or even small cavities underground that are full of water, or are they more like loose earth, Um, like a pumice that water can move through?
1: Well, you know, they can be, um, in the hypereic zone on most rivers, it's mostly sediment that's, it's the interstitial void spaces in the sediments that make up the floodplain. So imagine you took like a bucket and filled it with ping pong balls. Um, and then, you know, you can pour water into the bucket and you'll fill all those voids in between the ping pong balls because they're not going to, you know, fit like little bricks. There's going to be um, spaces in between those spheres. Um, you can think of the, the an aquifer or groundwater as is, is moving through those kinds of spaces below ground, but it could be, uh, you know, cracks in fractured bedrock. Um, so you can be very discreet in terms of almost like... Um, you know, flows through very particular fractures, uh, guiding a whole lot of flow, almost like an underground pipe. Or you could, or it could be like that bucket of sand or a, bu- a bucket of ping pong balls or a bucket of sand where you know, water will easily flow through those void spaces because they're all connected up, but it may be fairly slow relative to the, well, it would be very slow relative to the flow actually in the open channel of the river where the flow is unimpeded and just, you know, racing on downstream. So it really depends a lot on, what the nature of the material below ground is, you know, is there like a thin soil cover and you've got rock right near the surface, then you're looking at more fractures. And if you have like a, like along the Mississippi, if you've got, you know, deep piles of, you know, millennia worth of, of gravel and silt and sand that have been brought down by the river and deposited on the floodplain, that's all going to have those, you know, small interstitial pore spaces that water can move through and flow through. And if, if you look at most soils or most uh, just sort of loose sediment deposits, they're actually about you know 30 to 50 percent air or void space, and all that void space can either be full of air or it can be full of water, uh, depending on um, where the groundwater table is. Um, and that stuff, you know, water will move slowly through those kind of void spaces, but it, you know, gravity's a pretty persistent
0: uh, master. Everything's moving downhill. In some of that, you were talking about the, the uh, that how a river moves and the things that happen with these water tables and, and this hyperreact zone relate to the geology it moves through. What are the basic features? What are the basic features as you see them of a river?
1: Well, you know, the, the, the basic features of a river the way I see them are sort of the, the amount of flow that it's carrying, so the discharge of a river, but also then the size and shape and dimensions and nature of the conduit that that flow is carried in. So, you know, are the bed and the banks made out of bedrock or are they made out of gravel or are they made out of, you know, loose sand? What's the nature of the banks? Are they cohesive? do they hold themselves together well because they're made out of say clay that you know is cohesive in and of itself or are there lots of roots of either like you know grass or trees? What's the nature of the of the, the bed and the banks um, and then there's the the geometry of the river in terms of its basic features. Is it like a single channel that snakes across the landscape, or is it broken up into a whole bunch of different multiple threads like a braid? Or are there tons of islands and little channels in between them? One of the really cool things about rivers is that they're, they're, the physics that governs them is kind of universal, but the way it manifests in different environments and contexts gives rise to a really rich diversity of of morphologies or forms um, and different types of those basic features of the of the bed and the banks and the the relationship between the flow in the river and the the size of the material on the bed and the nature of it. But you know, in terms of basic features, you're talking bed, banks, flow as as kind of the short list, but the banks on the bed can have lots of different characteristics, and then the more the plan for morphology, or you know that whether it's a single channel or broken up into multiple channels, those are all some of the real sort of basic features of a river. You know, if you step back and think of a river as a system and not just sort of at a, you know at a certain point along its path, you can also think of a river as having sort of a source zone. Uh, up in its headwaters where most of the sediment is eroded that gets into the river where the, a lot of the runoff that dictates the flow is generated. And then there's typically a transport zone in the middle of a river system that connects that headwater source area down to wherever it's uh, flowing to its outlet, a delta kind of a system or an estuarine system where the, where the flow Leaves the river and enters a standing body of water like a lake or 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 the oceans. So one of the Cool things about rivers is you can think about them at different scales. You know, going down from the very the features of the bed of a river, sort of in and around the individual boulders or cobbles or sand grains on the bed, all the way up to you know the features of a river that starts off in the Himalaya and ends up in the Bay of Bengal. There's you know there's systematic changes that occur down through the system, and there's similar types of features that all rivers will have in common but that the particular features differ from river
0: to river. So I've I've heard, I feel like, two parallel statements from you that a river has, that that all rivers have similar features and all rivers have similar physics, yet the, the venue of that river on the planet creates different outcomes in relation to how the landscape, the riverscape, engages with the said features or said physics. Can you, can you go, go into that more and explain, maybe give us some examples of some of these parallels, yet, um, yet differences?
1: Say so you take two rivers uh, that start in mountain systems and end up at the sea somewhere. And one is flowing through um, sort of a tropical jungle, and the other is flowing through a desert. They're going to have different, you know, the way the discharge changes down through that system is going to vary because in the in the tropics where you have lots of rainfall, kind of everywhere a lot of the time, uh, that river is going to be, uh, you know, growing in size at a systematic rate down to that system as more and more water is routed off that landscape down through the system. But if you say you go for a river system that's flowing out of a an arid mountain range. A lot of the precipitation may be falling in like little patches on the landscape, not across the whole landscape at once, or most of it may be just in the headwaters and then the downstream areas don't get much. So the way that the river increases its, um, its width and its depth, its size as you go downstream will be really different than the one in the tropics where it's getting fed a whole lot of water all the way down its its length. So, you know, the, the basic way that a river will change its character down through the system is going to depend where on the planet it is. I like the way you put it. Where the venue of the river is really sort of helps to dictate what it's going to look like or what the form is. And similarly, uh, the nature of the vegetation that's growing in a landscape can actually impact uh, the nature of the banks of a river in terms of whether you have. Um, uh, you know, big trees with big roots holding the banks together and resisting the, the, the flow of water as it, it tries to erode into the banks of the river. Um, so you might have a, a narrower channel if you had big trees than if you had, say, just grasses growing on the edge of a river, where they don't provide as much strength to the banks, and so the flowing water can eat away and work away at those banks and, and leave you with a wider river. Um and so one of the one of the, the real take-home messages of that um, that I've sort of learned in my career, uh, the part of my career that has studied rivers, is that you know, you can take the same sort of textbooky ideas about what is a river and how does it work and how do the physics work. You can kind of take those anywhere in the world. But to really understand how a river is going to behave if you modify it, say if you put in a dam or if you look at it over geologic time, how it's interacting with the landscape, you've really got to understand the river in its, in its local context. And its context both within the river system and its context in relation to what's like just right upstream and what's just right downstream at that particular place in a river. So I've, I've made the, the call in the past to, when we're thinking about river restoration to think about you know, approaching understanding rivers kind of the way that medical doctors approach understanding health in the human body in terms of diagnosing sort of what's the state of this place? What has it been like in the past? What is it like now? What are the key indicators? How might it change into the future? Um, and that's, that's one of the things that makes studying rivers and working on river restoration really st- kind of interesting because you have to understand that context of each place that you go. Um, and that, that means that that rivers don't lend themselves well to sort of simple cookbook science or cookbook um, uh, restoration efforts despite um, uh, substantial efforts going into doing those kind of um, um, cookbook-like
0: projects. Give me some information, if you will, about gravity and then the the pitch of the ground, the angle of the earth where the water is flowing and how that impacts the speed. And I I you know I, I, I know in my question that it's pretty simple. It's like the more it's steep, the faster it goes. But there's a lot of other factors like the the geology and all these pieces. If you can just talk about speeds of rivers and the landscapes they encounter as they move and what happens and what's the result of greater pitch and flatter land, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, no, I'd be, be happy to do that. It's actually one of the, the one of the topics that in my um, the class that deals with sort of the introduction to river things that, it, that you basically spring the question on students usually of you know where if you think of sort of like a um, a, a mountain stream versus a lowland river like the Mississippi or the Missouri, um, you know which do you think is actually generally flowing faster? And most people will pick the mountain stream. It turns out to be generally the opposite. Um, and that's not because that gravity isn't working or because the pitch of the ground doesn't matter but it's because there's a third thing that matters as much um, so when we look about what controls the speed of flow in a river um, you know gravity is the driver right that's what's driving those 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 rampaging clouds that are tearing the mountains down back to the sea um, and the steeper a slope is, then, you know, you, you have a bigger downslope component of the forest attack that is helping to drive the flow. But the, the thing that is actually a really important factor not to lose sight of is the resistance of the bed of the river to that flow because that's the great modulator of the speed of the flow in a river. And so often when we look at, um, you know, like mountain streams with a lot of white water in them, they look really fast, and they can be really fast, right, but, um, but they look really fast because of all the turbulence in the water. All that white water is basically flow that is not just going downstream, but it's going up and down and back and forth and sideways, side to side. It's, it's incredibly inefficient. Rivers are not terribly efficient at translating the, the potential energy that that rainfall that falls on a landscape has when it hits the ground surface, and that potential energy is basically the energy of elevation. So, if you know, rain that falls in the mountains is going to flow downhill under the influence of gravity, converting its potential energy from the height that it was at into the kinetic energy of motion. And rivers are actually really inefficient at converting that potential energy into kinetic energy, and the difference is friction. And so rivers generally dissipate something like 97% of the, the potential energy that the precipitation that falls on the landscape comes with uh, or gets as it hits the ground. Um, they burn up with something like 97% of that in terms of friction. But what it basically means is that the roughness of a riverbed turns out to be the dominant factor in terms of setting the flow. And there's also the depth of flow. You, know, you get deeper flow, and the water's not going to be... F- more of the flow in the channel will be feeling less of the bed and the banks in terms of frictional resistance, which means more of the flow will be flowing faster over it. But so ironically, what it means... or not ironically, but, but un, uh, what's it, unintuitively... Um, you'll often find that the velocity of rivers actually increase as you go downstream from the mountains down into the plains. And if you've ever tried to take a canoe and just sort of launch it straight across a, a really big river, you know, you're not going to end up straight across the river from where you started. You're going to end up a long way downstream because they tend to flow fairly fast. Um, but they don't look like they're flowing as fast because um, they're bigger and they're wider. Um so when we look at the what impacts the actual velocity of flow in a river, um, we've got to look not just at the, at the pitch, not just at the slope, but also at the nature of the materials on the bed and the frictional resistance they can impart to the flow. And big boulders, are great at obstructing flow and dissipating energy in a river. Sand, not so much. Um, And that's one of the reasons why, you know, mountain streams tend to have these, you know, large class, large particles in their beds. Um, And big lowland rivers tend to have, um, you know, sand beds that are sort of constantly moving and and not very stable. Um, And that's the. There was a study that Luna Leopold, famous fluvial geomorphologist, did back in the 1940s where he really shocked his colleagues and and the people in the engineering world as well by going out and actually measuring the flow velocity as he went downstream from mountain systems into lower lowland systems. And he showed that, yeah, the velocity goes up uh, on the the, the flatter slopes. Um, And it's because of the compensating influence of... The roughness of the bed and changes in that roughness, um, as uh, that that essentially overcompensate for the, de- the declining slope.
0: M River, also known as Little River Research and Design, creates educational tables to demonstrate the movement of rivers. As a former classroom and experiential educator these tables catch my eye and pique my interest as they are clearly a tool that skips past boardroom and brings excitement into the classroom with the students. When I met with their team at their manufacturing and shipping warehouse, I asked how the tables meet instructional styles and educational needs.
3: We have M-River stream tables in three sizes. The M2 is two meters long. It was designed with portability in mind. And the M3 is three meters, the M4 is four meters. With a larger size table, you have more space to visualize greater meanders and other processes, but the M2, even the smallest one, is a fantastic teaching tool. What our models do so well is they shrink time and space down so that you can see river processes and dynamics in a very tangible, relatable scale so that you can bring things that take hundreds of years or hundreds of square miles into a classroom that a textbook cannot even come close to.
2: When a student has a question about river behavior or stream behavior, they say, you know, what if you do this or what if I do this? With our models they can instantly see what if I do this and they can repeat that over and over and over again very quickly. We have
3: a number of different instruments that can be added onto our models. so for example we have a wave maker that we build and you can see the effects of longshore drift, and you can see sediment build up, and you can build estuaries, and you can create mangroves. All of these kinds of things can show very complex interactions between streams or rivers and shores that are difficult to visualize otherwise, unless you've got a dynamic model like these. I'm Chris Schockel. I'm the business director. So I am the chief morale officer and remover of paperwork obstacles. My name is Jim King. I'm the production director little river and my job is to make sure we build things and get them out the door
0: you can find m river on their website emriver.com that is e-m-r-i-v-e-r.com also on twitter and instagram m river also known as little river research and design i told you at the beginning that this is the conversation i've been waiting for since the beginning of this podcast, and then the question inside the conversation that I've really been waiting for is this one, and that is, I want to understand current. You know, when I look at a river, I, I see it moving. I see it moving downstream. I can look at the, I can stare perpendicularly across the river, and I can see that it's moving. You know, either downstream to the left or downstream to the right. That that's easy. But I also recognize that at some level, there's probably currents in that body of water moving in all different directions. Maybe not always in one spot, but there's a lot of different cur- currents going on. And I remember a handful of years ago being being uh on a river trip with with a friend and he just talked about when he's guiding in the Grand Canyon that if he you know he's he runs the the dory boats, you know these these slicing wooden boats that that just move magically through the water. And he he was talking about how if he if he wants to do one thing He'll put his oar right at the top of the water. But if he wants to do a different thing, he'll, he'll really pitch his oar up high to, to send the blade down low into the next layer of current and do something. And I, I just lost it all there. I was like, what do you mean the next layer of current? So would you please talk about, well, layers of current, pillars of current, columns, whatever is going on with current in a, in a river?
1: yeah well you've got there's a lot of variability to it as 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 you're alluding to and so if you want to say measure the average velocity of the flow in a river and I'll get back to the the, the sort of other the vertical dimensions of how it changes um, in a minute but if you're basically just if your task is to figure out you know what's the velocity of flow or what's the total amount of discharge in the channel how many cubic meters of or cubic feet of, of water is moving per second down the river um, you know where do you measure it <laughs> if you measure it right by the banks it's going to be slow if you measure it out in the middle of the channel it'll be a lot faster. So, what we tend to advise people is, you know, measure it at least 10 places across the channel and then average it to try and get some kind of an average. But what that doesn't do is tell you, well, do you measure it just at the surface or how far down? And if you want a real representative average of the velocity of the flow in a river, you need to go to about, you know, 60% of the flow depth. uh, Because at the surface, it's flowing faster than it is at the bottom. Because at the bottom, Uh, That friction on the current, the riverbed, is going to basically, the water is going to be moving much slower near the bottom because it's engaging with all those, the the boulders or the gravel or the cobbles or whatever's making up the bed or the banks. That friction is, the the water moving on that, over that boundary is going to be what's feeling that friction. So you've got vertical variability, you've got lateral variability, and then you also have um, temporal variability, which is the variability of, of the current at a place over time. So, uh, and that's where turbulence really comes in, because you you can think of turbulence, the stuff that gives you all that nice white water and white water channels, you can think of it as um, fluctuations in velocity around the average that can basically be going in either laterally, vertically, or upstream, downstream. There can be substantial variability in, um, in the actual velocity at a point relative to the average velocity at that point if you integrate over time. So there's a lot of noise, a lot of mess, a lot of variability, a lot of flow going back and forth. Um, And if you look at the direction of current, uh, where your original sort of question started, uh, that can be different along the bed than it can be at the surface, because you've got the, the currents at the surface can be guided by the surface slope of the water, but also about what's happening just upstream. Um, Like if you come into a bend on a river, for example, and the flow is coming, you know, say you're going into a bend and the the channel bends to the left, well, that flow that's going into that bend is going to be running straight at what will then be the right-hand bank as that right-hand bank bends in and around to the left, and so the flow that's coming in will be hitting that bank you know, potentially causing erosion based on, you know, depending on what that bank's made out of. But then that bank will then force the flow back to the other side, and you can get big differences in the flow pattern between the bed of the channel and the, and the, and the, the water surface in the channel based on how that water from upstream is coming into that change in the orientation of the channel or a change in the, the topography of the riverbed. Like, say there's a big uh, uh, gravel bar in a river, then flow that comes in from upstream and hits that gravel bar is going to be steered around... That gravel bar, and that's gonna, you know, create a cross-channel component to the current. So your, your buddy is right, in that, that there's, there can be different directionalities to the current at different depths within the flow, and it sounds like he's kind of learned how to read how you do that as you go around bends or through both the boulder gardens on the Colorado, if he's mostly running on the Colorado. Um, you know, he it sounds like he's learned how to read how that vertical variability, uh, can impact the current at different levels, and he uses that in his guiding. So that's pretty cool.
0: A couple other layers, uh, pun intended, we'll just go with that pun. A couple other layers to this question. There's a place on the Colorado between, ju- just into Utah. So after the after the Colorado leaves the state of Colorado and it's come into Utah, there's a stretch of water called West Water. And you're, the, the river has... It's come out of the mountains. It's coming. It's it's stepped into the Colorado Plateau. It's getting into the 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 more sediment filled, the more more kind of desert sediment filled areas, canyon country, but then it it goes into this real tight gorge of the Vishnu Schist, which I just love to say the Vishnu Schist. You know this this hard rock that's some of the oldest rock on the planet. It's so smooth, and it's got all the fluting, and it just does all this. It does this really wicked work to the current. It's it's intimidating, intense to me because of all of the different currents moving at all these different angles across and throughout the this gorge.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the Vishnu Sis is a beautiful rock and it's, it's, it's really hard. So when you get down into the bottom sort of gorge in the canyon where that stuff is. I mean, the walls are vertical. It's very resistant to erosion, which means that um you know over time the river will shape the slot that it's that it's flowing in but if there's you know uh, bends or asperities you know sort of uh, knobs of that hard rock sticking out into the flow it can really perturb the flow at different levels and so you, you could it'd be a setup for having different kinds of cross currents and and a more complex flow and it's you know it's as a it could be very smooth surface as well which would um, could facilitate less erosional, res- less frictional resistance, and therefore a faster flow, which will also help generate um, you know, tricky currents. That's exactly what
0: happens. That's interesting. So the the last question in this is that w- what's happening with these whirlpools that sometimes you encounter? They could be out in the middle of the river where it's it's totally. Kind of uh, non rapid y, but they can also be in those those really intense rapid areas where you get these whirlpools. You know, they terrify me. I just, I have no interest in being near them because I just feel like you go into the disappearing place. What's, how, how far down do those go? What's going on there?
1: Um, well, there's different kinds of them. Some of them can be sort of big standing features of flow where you have uh, obstructions that, Generate that kind of a of a current, and the river's you know sort of carving out um almost like a the giant pothole that, that you can get that kind of a current in um and some of them can form you get these uh, boils that will come on these frictional boils that will come off be shed off of the bed of a river and basically just give you a you know a turbulent burst in a bubble um, but the ones that are sort of stationary and long lived are you know features of the bed that reflect that interaction of the flow coming in. They won't be uh, permanent features in terms of geologic time. You can think of them as places where there's probably a whole lot of erosional work going on carving it out, but you don't want to get trapped in your kayak.
0: So let's talk about what's in, in the water and in the river. And it, that kind of those first questions um, I was asking, like, you know, what what is a river? Is a river only water? And you really framed it out to be this this bigger kind of conduit that moves water that has all these... Other elements to it, what is in the the river water you know so you have the banks, you have the bottom, you have some roots sticking in you 've got the boulders but what's what's in the water and I, you know I, I feel like i can I can guess at a lot of the things, but what do you know that's in the water
1: well you you'd have um the, the the three sort of simple answers would be there be there's all the dissolved stuff. So you know, whatever was dissolved off of the landscape that got into the channel, things like bicarbonate would be the the biggest general dissolved component of most rivers around the world. It's a product of rock weathering that gets into rivers um, and influences the carbon balance in the the seas. There's so there's all the dissolved stuff: oxygen, bicarbonate, other kinds of compounds, any pollution that was gotten in it. Um, there's also the sediment in terms of suspended sediment. Um, lots of rivers, particularly sort of big lowland rivers, the ones that kind of flow that look kind of muddy, or like the big muddy, right, and where, that, where that name came from. Um, that's all from the suspended sediment. And then there's the life, which would be uh, things like algae, things like the insects or you know, benthic macroinvertebrates, bugs that live on the bed, uh, or fish. I sort of look at as those three kinds of things there's the dissolved stuff there's the, there's the sediment that uh is both suspended in the flow but also along the bed that's moving slowly uh, you know either hopping step by step down the river in the case of like uh, some sands and, and gravel uh or occasionally every 10 years sort of rolling another few feet like some you know gravel or cobbles and s- s- steeper channels um so there's the, the dissolved stuff, the sediment, and then the living stuff would be the three things that um, I'd sort of lump the stuff in rivers as long as you leave the, the kayakers and the people out, although I guess at least the people would count as living things too. <laughs> um,
0: so the, the dissolved bicarbonate, am I saying that right? Dissolved bicarbonate?
1: Yeah, yeah. The stuff that's, you know, the bicarbonate would be dissolved, but also like calcium, potassium, there'd be other elements that are generally dissolved in, in um in river water and that varies depending on the kind of geology that you're flowing through because it's all the stuff that like got picked up as as whatever water got into the river made its way to the river it was you know flowing over the ground surface or through the soil or through the bedrock in fractures however it got there is going to be in contact with um mineral particles in the soil or the rock that it's flowing through or the toxic waste dump that it it flowed through. Whatever it's encountering, it will pick up and deliver a a portion of that stuff um, and and carry it on down to the system. Um, And bicarbonate is simply the most abundant natural um, ion that is in most, most rivers.
0: In the state of Idaho, it seems like the rivers are just the cleanest, clearest things I've seen. And maybe there's more clean, clear water it doesn't really matter, but the wa- the quality of clear there is—is is just so perfect. Does that water have some of these dissolved elements in it, and they are just so fine or so clear themselves that we don't see them, or do you always see the dissolved elements?
1: Yeah, no. The dissolved—the dissolved stuff is generally, you know, not visible to the naked eye. Um, if you get a whole lot of it, like there's there's some. Uh, The famous, like, blackwater streams in the Amazon, for example, are places where you have these, you know, huge amounts of organic acids that are shed by the tropical rainforest, and they're getting into the rivers, and it literally turns them into sort of, you know, the uh, water the color of iced tea, (laughs) um... And the Olympic, and it's not just in the tropics. The rivers coming, some of the rivers coming out, some of the smaller creeks that are coming out of the Olympic Mountains in, in Washington State, where I am, uh, the temperate rainforest, you know, they get so much water, and there's so much organic matter in the soils and in the canopy, that that water, by the time it reaches the groundwater table, it's leached a whole, it's it's taken on a whole bunch of organic acids that, um, you know, are pretty much dissolved into the flow but that at a high enough concentration that it starts to become a little opaque. Uh, but generally, when you see opacity to the water where it looks muddy, it's because of physical sediment, suspended sediment in the water. But you can get enough dissolved stuff to actually start coloring the water. But like with the channels you're talking about in Idaho, they're probably fairly low concentrations of dissolved material, but there's certainly dissolved material you know, derived from the rocks of that region uh, that are going to be in that water. Um, but it could be at very, very, very low concentrations.
0: This next question might be stepping out of my element of understanding a bit, but that's why we're here <laughs> to clarify. So, <laughs> I, you know, I know that you do. I I I believe that you do um, a fair amount of work with with mushrooms and understanding the relationships of mushroom, mushrooms to plant life and soils, and and then all life. And and in that, there's these mycelium mats that that I've learned connect the under. Soil, earth, the under the underground world, all the living things are connected. I'm wondering about the life in a river. If if a, if water is that is is that kind of mycelium mat connecting everything, and I and I think it's obvious that it is at some level because everything's touching the water, it's all wet, etc. But is there some mechanism of exchange of life? of life-giving qualities going on in the river that I can't even really put the right words to but I, 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 yeah c- carry on with that question please
1: well it's a great it's a great it's a great analogy to try and think of i mean that the the really cool thing about sort of uh fungal uh, mats and uh, and mycelium mycelial networks in the soils, is it really is a way that um, you know plants are connected to one another, and that the the kind of um, you know plants that can photosynthesize and capture solar energy and turn it into biomass, a lot of them will partner with um, fungal networks that are on the decomposing end of of life. The sort of uh, what I like to think of as nature's grand recyclers, because they help um, living plants take up nutrients from both mineral particles in the soil, but also from the once-living things, the organic matter in the soil, and there's these partnerships that develop. And there's all kinds of communication and, and resource sharing and things that go on between fungi and other fungi, but also fungi and plants, that, that, that those networks are, are super cool. And we've only really started to to understand them in in recent decades. And they turn out to be really important for terrestrial life. And you can kind of think, I think, of rivers as, you know, analogous in a sense, um, in the sense that uh, I like to think of rivers as a network that basically connects terrestrial landscapes to marine landscapes and the river networks are, are, are kind of unusual in terms of ecosystems in the sense that they're, they're they are a network of connections and the nature of the connections really matter if you think of you know how salmon use a river system they can't get out and walk over to the next place and get back in i mean they're stuck within the river as are almost almost all um river dwelling organisms you know beavers being a great example that is a little different because they're they're mammals they're not fish they're not insects they're not a Aquatic insects um, but you can think of rivers as these networks that are like the circulatory system of a landscape where the products of rock weathering are getting into the rivers and being delivered back to the oceans um, but there's also flow that goes the other way so the the the, the circulatory system isn't isn't a perfect example and it gets back more towards your mycelial networks where the flow is two ways If you think about uh, the rivers of the northwest, the ones I'm most familiar with these days, um, an awful lot of the nitrogen that ends up getting into the old-growth trees growing along the riverbanks and the headwaters originally swam up the river as a salmon because uh, our river networks are pretty nutrient-poor in the northwest. But the ocean is a great grocery store for salmon, so when salmon start off as little fingerlings and they go out to the marine environment and they grow into these giant honking fish and they swim back up the rivers, when they spawn and then they die, their carcasses have delivered a ton of nitrogen back to these resource-poor terrestrial environments. And so there's, there's a two-way flow of resources, stuff going out to sea, and then the fish coming back up the river. So I like that analogy of thinking of rivers as a network that's connecting various components of life. Um, I think that works pretty well. Um, just not to say that you know rivers are mushrooms, but, to, but it is to say that I think that the, the parallel you're drawing there uh, actually makes a certain amount of sense.
0: Right, right now I am actually in Southern Illinois, uh, seeing seeing family, seeing my mom, and here, you know, this is the land of great rivers. The Mississippi River and the Ohio River come together just south of where we're at, down down at uh, at, at Cairo. So these massive rivers, and they are so um, contained by massive levee systems, and there's a, just the the amount of rain here boggles my mind sometimes. The point of that expression is that this is a place where these rivers are enormous. And even the small rivers are really big and powerful. There's creeks all over the place. It's just constant water. And these riverways, you know, as I drive around here, I see all the remnants of a big rainstorm. It just floods out into all these places. But we, as as an American culture and really as a human culture... In much of the world, maybe not much, but in a a significant portion of the world, we have contained rivers to, to just kind of channelize them, canal them into this now static river corridor, river bed. And I think we expect them to stay that way. So then when they leave that corridor, we call it flooding and we call it disaster and we call FEMA to come in and take care of us and we think it's just this awful thing. But I think it's probably not the awful thing. I think the awful thing is probably the fact that we're not letting it happen. Those are side currents. My question for you is, can you, can you help us understand what a river would like to do if it could just move where it would and the value of letting a river move as it will?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll go back initially to the sort of sta- the statement that you know we'd have to uh, couch that in terms of the context of a particular river. But uh, you know, talking about rivers in general, uh, you know, they want to move around. They they want to move uh, laterally. They want to uh, they want to cut in. Uh, you know. I don't want to give it uh, intentionality in terms of anthropomorphizing them, but the basic way that rivers work, they will tend to cut into their beds, and they will tend to cut into their banks, and they will tend to, to meander or to migrate. And if you think about how that works, think about if you take, have a straight shot at a river, and then uh, it starts to bend over to one side you're going to base as the flow moves into that bend, what's going to happen is that the flow is going to impinge and hit, uh, in moving through a bend, the flow on the outside part of that bend is going to get the faster current as it sweeps around that bend. That's going to cause more erosion on the outside of the bend, which means that that channel will, you know, that will widen in that direction. And it will also mean there will be a slower current on the inside of the bend, which means that some of the gravel or the sand that's moving through the river will get deposited on that inside of the bend. And if you play that over time, uh, after, you know, repeated flood after flood or high flow event after high flow event, the outsides of river bends will start, will will will, will grow. So bends will grow um, from little perturbations into big loops. And that's, that's the basic reason why with so many rivers that you see, they have sort of like a, a big snaking kind of path across the landscape, is that, you know, little bends grow into bigger bends, and then eventually those big bends can cut themselves off, and that's where you get those lakes known as oxbow lakes the sort of lakes you may have seen sort of on a floodplain where it looks like uh, the river was probably here once it's like an abandoned river meander rivers tend to grow their meanders and then cut themselves off um and so they they are inherently dynamic um and people do have a, a tendency not to like that when there's something like a highway or a house or a factory or, or something on the outside of a river bend that's getting eroded into, we tend to um, try and stop the erosion from happening. Um, and that can basically kick erosional problems on downstream or sometimes even upstream, depending on the geometry. So you'll often find the flood control measures, once they get imposed on one portion of a river, they spread up and downstream because those flood control measures are just kicking those problems upstream or downstream. Um, And levees are another good example of that, where if you basically hem a river in, um, what will often happen, um, and and the best example of this is probably uh, rivers like the Huanghe, the the formerly Yellow River in China, where Uh, The river comes off the Tibetan plateau and where it goes from a steep slope to a gentle slope it flows across agricultural areas that for several thousand years people have now been building levees up what happens when you build levees along a river is you're not letting the river overtop its banks and, and flood and spread out over its floodplain. So you're trapping it within within the channel, but you're also trapping where the sediment will get deposited. So if you go, uh, say, off of a steep slope, like coming off the Tibetan Plateau, onto a gentle slope like the big lowland plains of China, um, what happens to the, to the sediment that's been moving down to that system is it'll start to deposit and be trapped within the levee wall. which means that the bed of the river is building up over time. So what's happened with some of these big rivers and levee construction where it's been going on for a long time is that it's kind of a slow motion way to jack the river up off of its floodplain and perch it at a higher elevation trapped within its levee walls. And what that means is that Come the day where the river overtops its levees, and if you get a big enough flood, any river will overtop its levees someday. Uh, It just may not be very often if you've built a big enough levee. But when they do overtop, if your river is perched above the entire surrounding valley, what you've done is you've created a bathtub. And then the river just fills the bathtub up. So there were floods in the 19th century in China where a million people died. Because the levees burst and the rivers were perched up above their floodplain, and the land, you know, all the farmland just filled up like a bathtub. Um, so, you know, messing with the dynamic nature of rivers can have consequences that are not necessarily desirable. Um, and that you know ranges from dams to, to levees to, to the erosion of the outside of meander bends. But yeah, so rivers are inherently dynamic, um, and there's there's great you know people have studied that going back to like the 17th century There's was great works by uh, the Italian engineers in northern Italy about river training and under, trying to understand river physics and I, I sort of go back to those books sometimes and you know I can use examples of the figures that were drawn five four or five hundred years ago in lectures today to basically show you know this is how rivers work <laughs> um, you go around a bend road the outside of the bend um, so if you want basically don't want your infrastructure to be damaged by the river moving around. It, you might not want to build it on the outside of the bend.
0: The, so, a combined question here. You know, I'm, I'm hearing you talk about the purpose of rivers, and in these various answers you're giving to other conversations, to other questions, you're, there's I can hear it coming in, like the, the, the purpose of a river. But I'm curious if you can just mo- if very explicitly st- explain to us the. The, the novice in the game of hydrology if you can explain to us um, what is the purpose of rivers and uh, kind of in the same time there how important are rivers are our rivers important how important are rivers to our our ecosystems our, our way of being alive
1: boy well you know, Again, there's sort of different ways to answer the question. At sort of a large-scale planetary level, you know, the purpose of a river is to help recycle the continents. Um, they help deliver the material that gets weathered and torn up from weathering processes in the mountains, and they help carry it down to the sea and sort of help set what's called the back half of the rock cycle where you look at how continents are built and eroded over time and rivers are kind of the cleanup crew in that regard in terms of delivering stuff back to the oceans. Um, and they 're involved in carbon cycling um, and delivering that bicarbonate back to, to marine environments, but they 're also critically important for the the ecological systems that are built on landscapes. You know, water is a critical resource i mean it 's one of the three, one of the things that distinguishes this planet from you know, all the others that we know of we 've got free water on the surface of this planet, a lot of it, even though only a little of it is fresh water at any one time. And so that little ribbon of fresh water that's always running from the mountains back down to the sea is a huge... Huge importance ecologically. Uh, So rivers have sort of a a purpose in a sense at a planetary scale and a geological scale, but at an ecological scale, it's even more more substantial and kind of more in our face in terms of looking at how that affects, um, you know, obviously aquatic ecosystems, but as the circulation network for landscapes. uh, it really helps stru- – rivers really help structure the way ecosystems are arrayed on terrain and, uh, and uh, allowed to develop. And then if you look at human societies, I mean, we've used – Rivers in various ways, as transportation networks, as irrigation sources, um, and you know, we our our modern civilization is every bit as dependent on freshwater resources, which is rivers and lakes um, and groundwater to some extent in places, we're every bit as dependent on that as every ancient society has been. I mean, it's a critical piece of our environmental infrastructure that allows us to thrive on this planet. So you know rivers are pretty important in all those regards, and then you can even get into sort of you know cultural purposes and you know images of renewal and all those kind of things if we want to get into the culture end of things but and, you know as part of the basic physical the basic biophysical infrastructure of the planet, uh, rivers have a really major and central uh, place in the sort of the, in the hierarchy of importance Um they're they're a resource that we all too often tend to take for granted, but that we that we critically depend on and and pretty much have and and will continue to do so. Um, however,
0: however we treat them. In your in your professional and personal opinion, how do you feel rivers are doing today?
1: You know, it, it depends kind of where you're talking about. There's places like uh, the Elwha River on um, uh, on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington where. Uh, they've pulled out two big dams a few years back, and salmon are coming back, and that river's in you know in good shape and getting better. Um, there's others that are critically endangered. I think the conservation group American Rivers has just announced or is going to announce that the Snake River is, is the, the most endangered river this year. Um, there's places where the rivers are in very bad shape. Um, but I think that the, the awareness of the importance of rivers as um, – ecological systems and for human societies is opening uh, opening a window for trying to think about treating them better so i'm actually you know reasonably optimistic about the trend in in the western world in terms of working to for river conservation and improving um river conditions that said, there's an awful lot of dams still being built in places around the world, um, and there's an awful lot of projects I've seen. I was in Africa recently, uh, seen, and looking at um, some soil-related issues, and, and the, the the part of Ghana that I was in, there are Chinese companies coming in and digging up entire floodplains for the gold that was in the, the gravels, mm-hmm. and that was the best agricultural land in that landscape, but it was being basically turned inside out and turned upside down, and the rivers are being pretty much destroyed um, to, to get that gold out a very short-term, um, a very, very short-term um, uh, kind of decision-making. So, you know, I, I could put a pessimist hat on or an optimist hat on, depending on which river I was talking about in the world, but I think the awareness has been growing enough that um, I'd like to think that we're... in uh, poised to enter an era where we start to treat rivers a lot better. There's been major river conservation efforts in the U.S. Um, it, it, we could still use some more, um, but things have been getting somewhat better in, in recent decades. But but globally, we're probably still struggling to basically um, make the turnaround.
0: And And my last question is, why rivers? Why have you invested so much of your life in studying rivers to, this, to the place where you can teach us. In an, in an hour, you can deliver us a, a, a really comprehensive understanding of what a river is. What, why are rivers of that value to you?
1: Well, you know, I've been fascinated by topography for a long time, since I was a teenager probably. And if you look at what shapes landscapes on earth, rivers are one of the big systems. You know, there's glaciers, there's rivers, there's wind, um, and then just, you know, erosion by gravity. Rivers are one of the biggest uh, pieces of that. So if you study landscapes, you gravitate towards, you know, having to pay attention to rivers. And, you know... um, you know, frankly, rivers are incredibly nice places to hang out and work. <laughs> I mean, so if you have an opportunity to study a natural system, a river is a pretty good one to choose <laughs> um, in terms of where you'll be spending your life's energy and your and your attention. Um, but they're also... A system that exists in a way at the interface between the natural world of sort of of, uh, of of rocks, the things that geologists like myself are trained to to think about and study, and the living world of biology and and human um, and human civilizations and the way we treat the land. And I've been interested in all three of those for a long time. So rivers are kind of a natural um, medium to, to work in for me along those lines. And there's also that's the sort of the vagaries of one's own career when I got hired out of grad school as I mentioned earlier I did my PhD thesis on the problem of where do rivers actually begin and I loved that question because it's you know part philosophy but you can boil it down to physics and go find the place where they start and study what's controlling that Um, but it also uh, leads one into uh, that led me into then getting a job at the University of Washington that was funded for the first five years that I was here at looking at how the way people had uh, had uh, impacted river systems affected the salmon that lived in those rivers, um, so there's both sort of abstract and theoretical areas of, that make rivers interesting to me, but there's also very very practical and and conservation oriented issues for which rivers are a really good. Um, Uh, topic to study as well and I've been interested in all those things so I kind of naturally gravitated towards them um, and have very much enjoyed working on rivers because uh, you know I'm uh, there's few ideas of a really enjoyable nice afternoon than being on or in or along a river somewhere there's something just wonderfully satisfying as a human being about being
0: near a river A zone sized thanks goes out to Dr. David Montgomery for sharing his knowledge and perceptions of rivers with us today. You can learn more about Dave, his work, books, and music in the show notes. You can find The River Radius on Instagram and Facebook, where additional river content is published weekly. You can also find more information on our website. Those links are also in the show notes. You can contact us anytime, hello at theriverradius.com. My name is Sam Carter. Thanks so much for joining The River Radius.
1: I also play music in a couple of bands in Seattle. Well, if you've ever heard of Big Dirt or Good Bones, you might know about them. And if you haven't, then you can always check them out on Spotify or iTunes or those kind of places. We pay for it in November, December. Oh, yeah, it's dark and wet. never terribly organized on my end. Or maybe I should say we're always terribly organized on my end. Yeah, I'm drinking my hopped green tea.